for the week of October 8th, 2015. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. This week, we are going to discuss Sun Edison's woes. In just a few months, the company's stock has dropped by 70%. And now executives are being forced by the market to rethink their strategy for creating the world's next energy super major. Then an update on some very important stories we've previously covered. Exelon's derailed $6.8 billion acquisition of Pepco is back on track in D.C. Shell has officially abandoned offshore drilling in the Arctic. And there's been lots of action on energy bills in Congress. We'll have a quick recap of those. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., here to help guide you through those stories. Catherine and Jigger are going to be here in just a few minutes. But first, I turn to my boss, uh, my friend, our GTM co-founder and CEO, Scott Clavenna. He's here to give us a quick update on some things that we've been working on for a while behind the scenes. So for those who've been on the site in the last couple of weeks, they might notice something different, a redesign. But we also have content that you have to pay to access. So are you telling me, Scott, that our site isn't free anymore? Did you just force me and our attention-hungry editors behind a paywall? No, we didn't. We didn't, Stephen. Um, the world can still enjoy your daily news. Uh, <laughs> what we did was take uh, a page out of you know some other sites, something that's been going on in the industry, uh, the, the media industry, for a little while, and, and we adapted it to Green Tech Media, where we have what we're calling GTM Squared, which is a, a premium editorial service. So the, the regular news site is still free. It's ad-supported. It's the same business model we've always had. But this GTM Squared is a slightly different business model where the readers do have to pay. It's an annual fee of $199. Uh, but with that fee, you do get uh, a lot of premium content from the editorial team and some from the analyst team as well. You know, we've got a lot to offer here at Green Tech Media. And I think you know, the reason we went in this direction uh, was because our understanding of our audience and, and talking with many of them is that they're deep in this industry and they are definitely looking to, to go deeper into these stories. Uh, and we're kind of uniquely positioned to help them go, go there. Uh, we've got an analyst team. We've got you guys uh, that, that are, are very, uh, you know, you're on our staff. You're not freelancers. You're well-versed in this industry. You're, you're out there in the market every day and, and have a uh, ability and willingness to go uh, deeper and have write longer feature stories or stories that are more data rich uh, or, or more particular perspectives. And so this was a way to package that up into a, a premium editorial service and offer it up to the, the readers to pay for. And so it's not ad supported. It's, you know, it supports you guys doing the independent journalism you're doing. And uh, it's something that gives you like a, a direct relationship with the, the readers who are paying to hear what you guys are writing. So it's pretty cheap to at $199 a year. This is where I break out my, my NPR hat. That's 65 cents a day. So so when people are trying to convince you to buy something, like like during a PBS pledge drive or an NPR pledge drive, they're going to compare the daily price to something like a cup of coffee. 65 cents a day is, you know, it's like the price of a gumball or something. <laughs> to make things more interesting, though, I've actually went through my credit card statement this morning, picked a random day, and tried to show how little you're actually paying. Keep in mind that I live in one of the most expensive cities in the country, so results may vary. But here's from this past Saturday. I spent $80.70 on groceries. I spent $72.68 
at a bar for my friend's birthday. That's, that's what you get for buying everyone a round of shots, I suppose. Uh, and that day, Comcast also charged me for my cable and internet bill, which I am totally ashamed to say amounted to $198.64. So in one day, I spent $352.02. If I added $0.65 cents to that, I wouldn't even notice. So aside from the groceries, I don't need those rounds of shots, or I don't need the Comcast cable necessarily. But it's my job. I do need the information on the industry that I cover. And like most of you in the business, you need that information too. So for $0.65 cents a day, you could get a service that is actually vital to you and your business. I'm sure 65 cents is affordable to you too, Scott. Absolutely. I'm a, I'm a happy subscriber right now. Somehow I get the hunch that you're able to get that for free though. <laughs> yes. Somebody here gave me a login. I got lucky that way. We've also redesigned the site here. I've, I've got my phone, my tablet, my computer all open at the same time, and the site fits neatly into each screen. So it looks like we finally entered the mobile optimized era. Yeah, that took us a while. This was version 6 of the website, and we've made a lot of changes since 2007. But this was the first time we actually built. We had an app in the past uh, where you could get to news via um, an iPhone app. But this was the first time we actually uh, integrated or incorporated responsive design into the website. So now the the site itself uh, adapts to any size screen from uh, computers to tablets and phones. So that's a great, a welcome change, certainly for me as uh, a reader every morning to be able to look at it on my iPhone in a way that's uh, much easier to read than the previous version. And remember, all the content we put out, including this podcast, is still free. Squared is our collection of bonus content from our editors and researchers. And again, we've got a new podcast called The Interchange, hosted by me and the estimable Shale Khan which we've been premiering on this show. Uh, it's designed to dig deep into one topic and, and, and provide some actionable insights into what we're watching in the industry. We're going to give you a couple more episodes free on the Energy Gang feed, and then it will only be available to Squared subscribers through a super-secret RSS feed. So find out more at GTM Squared at greentechmedia.com slash squared. Scott Clavenna, our founder co-founder and CEO. Thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. Thanks. Delighted to finally get an invite to be on the Energy Gang. All right. Catherine and Jigger are with us now from their usual purchase in Washington and in New York. Catherine, how are you? Back from uh, meetings at the White House and on Capitol Hill? Yes, it's been a very busy couple of weeks. We missed you last week. You lost your phone too. Did you lose that? I did. Capitol so Hill? I um, I left it in an Uber, and I now don't know what time it is ever. Uh, so I'll get a new one. I'll get a new one later today. What did we do before cell phones? Oh yeah, we had watches. Yeah, I don't own a watch because I always would lose <laughs> the watches. <laughs> the question is whether the Uber driver is going to get you that phone back. Not not so far. He's checked. He can't find it. Jigger Shaw is in New York. I assume that you are fully equipped with a cell phone and computer and all your electronics are in place. I am. And I'm eagerly waiting the governor's big announcement today on energy and, uh, and climate. So, uh, the governor's given a big, uh, big talk, I think at like two o'clock Eastern time. Governor Cuomo. Yep. Also in California, governor Brown is signing the landmark 50% renewable energy target into law. So God, we, uh, we have way too much to talk about here. But we have one big topic that has been at the top of the news in the last couple of weeks, particularly in the last week, and that is Sun Edison. It is a company that comes up a lot in this podcast. 
It is, of course, the solar developer that Jigger co-founded in 2003 and then left in 2008 to pursue other investment opportunities. The last time we talked about the company was the week of July 20th, and that was, of course, when Sun Edison acquired Vivint, the number two U.S. residential solar installer. At that time, its stock was Sun Edison's stock was 31.66. By last Tuesday, however, its stock had stock price had fallen by 80 percent. Uh, it's gone up since then, but it's still down 70% from July. Uh, Sun Edison's yield codes, meanwhile, the public companies that it created to buy projects, had dropped 50% in value as well. As I reported on Sunday, Sun Edison is now planning a major round of layoffs. And according to the company's 8K filed this week, it's about 1,000 people or roughly 15% of its employee base. So what the heck happened here? This has been a rocky ride over the last few months. The reasons are are varied and complex. Many investors didn't understand the Vivint acquisition. We tried to make sense of it, but we weren't quite sure how beneficial it was to the company. They were also concerned about the debt Sun Edison was taking on to buy up lots of companies all at once. I I think that their debt for for these acquisitions is well past $10.5 billion. The stock has been hit by short sellers, by a general push out of solar stocks by confused investors who kind of think low oil prices hurt prospects for renewable energy companies. A lot of complicated factors. Jigger, I I think investor sentiment can largely be summed up in two words, slow down. We asked in July whether Sun Edison was on a sustainable growth path, path and investors clearly didn't think so. So would you agree that investors haven't been able to get a handle on Sun Edison's growth plans? Yeah, I mean, I think I've consistently said on this podcast and other places that Sun Edison was doing too many things. Um, you know, I just think that, like, I mean, let me just paint the picture for you from the perspective of the investor, right? Which is Sun Edison basically comes out of the gate, says, we're going to create a yield co, and that yield co is going to allow us to, to access better cost of capital for largely understood utility scale projects, right? I don't know that commercial and residential was pre-approved. The investors think this is a great idea. They spin it out. They successfully create a yield co. They do all this work. And then they say, oh, by the way, we're buying first wind. And we are now the largest renewable energy company in the world. And we're doing wind and solar. From an investor's point of view, you're like, okay, wind is sort of still utility scale. That makes sense. We can sort of put that in. We can sort of understand it. But wind does have a little bit more volatility than solar does, so we sort of have to model that, right? Now you say, we're also going to you know, buy Vivint, which is residential solar. And that just throws investors for a loop because they're saying, what else are you going to throw at us next week? I mean, in the meantime, by the way, they like tried to buy that Latin American group, which fell through this week, um, which was Hydro. Separately, they had a battery storage division by buying solar grid storage. The, then they hired Kathy Zoy to do sort of, you know, be the queen of off-grid utility work or something. And then, you know, there's like any number of initiatives. And then all, all the while, they're trying to like hire more women which if they hired more women, I think they probably wouldn't be in this mess. What about the argument? So John Hempton from Bronte Capital, uh, this hedge fund, wrote a long piece last week outlining his criticisms of Sun Edison. But he also, uh, interestingly enough, said that he was long on the stock. Um, and, and he said that he thought that the, the deals that Sun Edison was doing with its yield codes was too complicated for executives to understand 
Do you agree with that? Do you think that the, that Sun Edison is morphing into or tried to morph into a financial engineering firm rather than a traditional project developer? Well, I mean, Sun Edison was started as a financial engineering firm. I mean, just to be clear, when my when I started the company in 2003, we were a finance company. So, so I don't think that was his criticism. I think his criticism was that Sun Edison financial engineers didn't actually know what they were getting themselves into. What Sun Edison was doing is playing a trick on the market, right? So Sun Edison said, we have very low cost capital in our, our yield co and very high cost capital at Sun Edison. So we're going to go to the best developers in the world and we're going to offer them way too much money for their existing assets. We're going to pay them 40% more than NextEra or NRG or anybody else would pay them for those existing assets. But we then get the right to all of the development pipeline that they have, which is why they have this gargantuan pipeline. If you saw the, the call they did yesterday, they reported that they had 33,000 megawatts of leads in their pipeline. I mean, it's just shocking how much stuff they have there. But they played a trick on investors. They said, we're going to overpay for, for these operating projects with cheap money in the yield co. And I think the investors revolted and said, wait, that's not showing discipline. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be buying good quality projects for the Yield Co. and good quality pipeline for Sun Edison, not trying to like arbitrage the two. And essentially where we are now is that the stock prices for Terraform and Terraform Global are low enough that they can't issue equity and buy projects from Sun Edison. So Sun Edison uh, CEO Ahmad Shatila and CFO Brian Wobles talked to investors uh, yesterday and outlined a plan to become, at least for the next year, a more traditional development company and sell projects to utilities and other third parties and uh, host up to $5 billion in projects in five different warehouse facilities, both for completed projects and projects under construction, with the option of dumping them into the yield codes, assuming that you know those yield codes have enough cash to buy the projects. So uh, it was... A lot of people I talked to, Jigger, weren't that surprised. You know, the the yield co prices, stock prices have been down for some time. And so I think people were waiting for this day to happen when Sun Edison shifted into a more of a third party sales role. Yeah, but I I mean, this is what I would have done if I was running the company. I mean, I would have just I mean, they if you look at their announcements um, yesterday, it was like 20 percent lower than their previous forecasts. It was just a much more reasonable thing across the board. But I, I, I'm not sure that Ahmad and, and Carlos can stay in motivated in that environment. I mean, this is a really boring you know, strategy that they put forward, which is really about execution and nothing else. It's basically saying, do what you said you were going to do and do it well and prove to us that you can do it well. I don't know that either one of those guys likes doing that job. I think both of those guys are you know, are going to get bored out of their mind in this job. But do you think they can? Supposing- of course they can. It's the, basically, they're moving back to the original business model that we created. It's a very, very like slow and steady wins the race model, which is like where they should be. They should be like doing more fundamental work and culling through their pipeline. The 20% that they axed yesterday were the 20% that was the, the least you know, like well-formed and, you know, and they're basically telling investors, okay, we're going to slow down and do a better job of doing due diligence and managing our cash and, you know, meeting investor expectations. 
It also sounded like from that call that they're adjusting so that they're really, really focused on the strong markets in U.S., Latin America, India, and China instead of trying to be everywhere. Yeah, I think they're dialing back some of their Latin America efforts. They're pulling out of the U.K., and they're going to focus on North America, um, some very easy-to-target Latin American markets, and and Asia as well. Um, But certainly, absolutely right, limiting some of their geographic scope. The one big thing out of the announcement yesterday, though, is I don't know if you noticed, but the um, they totally decimated their forecast for commercial and industrial. I actually so, did not see that number. Yeah, so they basically how, cut how it drastically by, did it change by at least half, if not more. But more importantly, if you look at the size of the bars, you know, commercial industrial is like less than ten percent of their overall plan going out to twenty twenty. I'm still trying to get a handle on what this means for the projects they're maintaining in the field, um, how they're consolidating teams. Of course, they announced that they were going to be consolidating management. They were going to be cutting costs through finalizing some of these acquisitions and getting rid of duplicate roles. But as we saw, um, you know, the whole solar grid storage team has basically been laid off. They, many of them have been moved into solar sales roles. Uh, And, and, in speaking to folks who've been on involved on the storage side, they're worried about Sun Edison actually maintaining those assets in the field. They're Have not going to maintain those assets in the field. So, I guarantee you that Sun Edison will renege on all of their storage promises and will sell off their storage portfolio within weeks. Who would be out there to buy them? Nextera, lots of people are, are looking to buy them. A yes. I mean, Sun Edison literally is going back to basics. Anything and everything that they thought was interesting within that company is gone, right? All of the specialty guys here and the guys working on pumping there and the guys doing this over there, all of those people are gone. And if they're not gone now, they will be within three or four months, right? They are literally going back to basics. This is a solar and wind company now and nothing more. Well, John Hempton of Bronte Capital in his blog post concluded by saying this had better be a boring company and they better get boring fast uh, or else they'll suffer for it. And it looks like they are getting a lot more boring after yesterday's call. So we'll keep following this. And one one other thing, though, Stephen, I just want to make sure that I, I mean, I talked to a lot of Sun Edison people who have lost their job over the last, you know, five days. And. What I would say to you is the one thing that everyone is upset about is the fact that no one at the top got lost their job, that no one that was involved with the Vivint transaction lost their job, no one that really made the mistakes lost their job. It was all people who were basically just, you know, folks who were doing their job and doing exactly what they were told to do that lost their jobs. It was nobody that actually made the bad decisions that lost their job. Absolutely. And that brings me to the story that I wrote on Sunday. We talked to a half a dozen people within the company at a very high level who all said the exact same thing. Uh, and, and they said that others were whispering within the company about how angry they were that many of the top brass who executed some of those deals didn't lose their jobs. So I heard the exact same thing. They also, they also laid off a lot of the older people. So one of the guys that they laid off um, was over the age of 45. And I guess there's some new regulation that says if you lay people off over the age of 45, you actually have to share with them all the names and all the ages of the people that got laid off. So he has this list. And there were a lot of people that were that in that category that they laid off. So they, they kept a lot of the young people and laid off a lot of the original Sun Edison employees, a lot of the early guys like Steve Voss or Franny Uhas, who was our first employee. You know, they laid off a lot of the, the old guard. 
So the second half of our show is going to be an update on a bunch of different news stories that we were not able to cover or that uh, we've covered in the past and that we we want to um, provide some additional information on. So firstly, Exelon's bid to take over Pepco, the, the distribution utility that serves customers in D.C., Maryland, New Jersey, and Delaware, is um, now being reconsidered by the, the Public Utilities Commission here in D.C. and is supported by the mayor. There was intense opposition to the deal from the original deal from D.C. locals concerned that Exelon was going to abandon renewables and jack up rates to help pay for its struggling nuclear fleet. Exelon is back. They've gone back to the city with a compromise proposal. The mayor now supports it. The Public Utilities Commission is going to reconsider the plan. Catherine, it, it sounded like when we were talking to Anya Schoolman that the mayor privately supported the acquisition to begin with, and we were expecting a new deal to come through. So probably not much of a surprise that Exelon came back with a deal that she couldn't pass up. Yeah, and I wonder, I tried to reach Anya and I couldn't get a hold of her because I would love to hear what she says about how this all went down. But the one thing that I'm wondering is going to be, is going to really change what the PSC decides is the D.C. People's Council is in support of the settlement. So I don't know how that plays into this because she is really supposed to negotiate on behalf of the citizenry. And, you know, if she's on board, I just wonder how now this is going to go down with the rest of the commission. Exelon addressed a couple different concerns. One was the investment in renewable energy. One was the promise not to raise rates. Uh, it did not make a promise that it, that it uh, would not raise rates, but it did provide an additional $55 million um, in bill credits for low-income residents and for broader residents. And uh, I think that that will be worth like 50 bucks per rate payer when those get distributed, if those get distributed. And then there's yeah, an everybody gets 17- 50 bucks. Everybody gets 50 bucks on their bill for this. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and they can reaction. raise and they can raise rates sky high with with impunity. Basically, what the mayor did was say, you need to move your Exxon Utilities headquarters to D.C. and then I'll roll over for you. And so that's what happened. Exxon's moving their utilities headquarters to D.C., co-locating, you know, Exelon corporate. And I just, it's, it's literally just the worst deal. I'll make a prediction right now. There is no chance in hell that Muriel Bowser gets reelected mayor of DC. This was the worst deal that she could have possibly cut. And she literally is following in the footsteps of her useless boss, Adrian Fenty. Oh, you think that this is a big enough issue that it will impact her politically, huh? This she literally said to every poor person in D.C., I don't care about you, which is exactly why her boss and her mentor, Adrian Fenty, got voted out after one uh, term. She just literally said, as long as I get the utilities headquarter in D.C., I'll do the deal. I honestly just don't care about poor people. It's a pretty bold statement. Yeah, but how, how do you think the commission's going to vote on this, Jigger? The commission's, I mean, this look, the commission is... Um, is nominated by the mayor and the and the DC citizenry. So I mean, I don't know. I you know, obviously, I know the commissioners really well. I think that they hate this deal. I it would be shocking though for them to vote against the mayor. So we'll see. I mean, they made a pretty broad based, very coherent argument against this acquisition, which surprised a lot of people. But from the few folks that I've talked to after yesterday's meeting. Most people think that the deal is is going to be very hard to pass up for the Utilities Commission. 
I, it's not a it's not a deal. No, no, no. It's very easy for the utility to pass up by the Utilities Commission. There is nothing, nothing new in here that Exelon offered. Literally, the mayor rolled over to get the economic development benefits for the city. Well, let's let's complete with just a, a look at what else is in here. Exelon said it would set up a seventeen million dollar sustainability fund. You know, it's going to provide a few million dollars to support solar, ten million dollars to support a green building fund. And then they said they would. They promised an additional 10 megawatts of solar procurement and an additional 100 megawatts of wind within a few years of the merger. Uh, and in seeing the reaction of local activists within the city, they are not convinced. I mean, they think that this is they peanuts. They hate the and they, deal. Oh, they absolutely hate the deal. And, they, <laughs> and, you know, and going back to what Anya said in our initial interview, she explained that they had uncovered board documents showing – that they were inherently opposed to community solar programs, to net metering, and that was an important part of their business model. So they, they have severe skepticism about well, that. Well, and, and in the end, you're still going to have to, the citizens of D.C. and other the other states are still paying to prop up the old incumbent power plants. You're absolutely right, Catherine. But if you don't mind, I'd love to just transition this to the VW scandal, which I think is the much bigger news topic that we didn't cover last week. Um, in my opinion, this this VW scandal is the biggest auto scandal that I've ever heard of in my entire life. Like That's give, how big it is. Uh, I'm sure everyone has heard of it by now. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on what exactly VW, basically what VW did was say that the EPA um, testing regime was so easy to game that they actually reprogrammed their computers to run a certain way to be able to get through the um, EPA testing for their diesels, but then you know went back to the normal mode, which was high power and all that stuff, which provided 40 times the level of pollution. And the worst thing about this is that pollution actually kills people. That's why EPA actually regulates it, is it creates ground-level ozone and smog and other things that, you know, people with breathing ailments actually, you know, can't handle and die from. And so it's just, it's just unconscionable what they did. Yeah. And wasn't the deal that they had spent billions of dollars developing this really high tech engine and then it didn't perform the way they wanted it to. And rather than correcting that, they were like, oh, well, we can just fix this by making sure that it tests as if it did perform. Well, and I, I think what you will find is that Every automaker was doing this in small, less insidious ways. And so I think the scandal is not done here. I think you will find that GM, Ford, Chrysler, everyone was cheating this way. And then the question becomes, you know, does the Congress actually give EPA more money to be able to actually beef up their testing? Because the way this testing works is EPA has no money. So this is all self-reported. The the automakers pay for the testing and then self-report the results. Yeah, I mean, the... the Pollution element of this is probably the most Im- important, but I'm very interested in the business implications because VW spent a lot of money to promote its diesel engines as a cleaner alternative, and uh, I'll be interested to see how this cuts into diesel sales here in the U.S. Oh, I have a lot be- of friends who've bought cars specifically oh, yeah. because of that the, the idea that they thought that they were driving a cleaner alternative. They're going to be decimated because they don't actually meet EPA standards. So they are illegal. You cannot buy a diesel engine now because they don't actually meet the standards unless you have a urea 
system, which is really expensive, right? And that's what VW was trying to claim is that they were so extraordinary that they were able to avoid this urea system to be able to meet the, the emissions regulations. Well, and now even if they fix them, nobody will believe them or trust them anyway. This is devastating. This is far worse than Toyota's mishap. VW is, will be damaged for a decade or more in the United States of America. Yeah, there's no other way to describe it but conspiratorial. Let's transition to Shell. Shell, uh, of course, had spent, gosh, almost a decade on risky plans to drill for oil offshore in the Arctic. And uh, it actually started in the 90s and picked it back up in um, the early 2000s. And in late September, it announced that it was abandoning those efforts after spending $7 billion on exploratory drilling. Environmentalists rejoiced. They claimed victory. The reality, though, is that the low price of oil made it very difficult to spend billions more on a difficult-to-access resource in a very harsh environment. Jigger, would you agree that it's the economics that, that forced Shell's hand here? No, I honestly think it was the Energy Gang podcast. <laughs> they clearly listened to our podcast and were like, oh my God, you're right. We're not going to make any money on this deal. We should shut it down immediately. <laughs> Catherine, how do you feel knowing that you derailed Shell's Arctic drilling attempts? It was Jigger. That's all I can say. No, but but on a more serious note, I was uh, having uh, breakfast with uh, Chairman Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski, a Republican from Alaska, and she is very into renewables. She talked the whole time uh, with our group about how important they were. And but the the issue is that all the a lot of those projects are funded by royalties from the oil industry. So it's all such an intertwined ecosystem up there. And granted, this was going to supply supposedly oil for a lot more than just Alaska. But the royalties um, really help fund the way the folks live up there and all of those renewable projects to try to get, you know, get electricity to in a sustainable way to places that are having to import diesel Um so, I mean, it's, t- it's tough to see them losing economically because then it also hurts the good stuff up there. What do you think, Catherine, about the environmentalists claiming victory here? I mean, clearly they've been very active, but Shell basically said, we, we drew a well that wasn't as productive and didn't show as much resource as we thought, and we can't do this for much longer with oil prices down around $50 a barrel. We need them above 70 yeah, I mean that's an economic decision, not a political decision, I would imagine. But Have you heard I a lot of enviros think... claiming victory though? Like I I mean I've I've seen so many people saying we stopped this. And well, I certainly understand their celebration. I I mean it's it's naive to think that they actually played a role here in stopping Shell specifically. I don't know that it's naive. Like I think that I agree with you completely this was an economic decision, but Shell is still trying to be viewed as a responsible company. And that that like aura matters because they lose deals all the time in many countries around the world if, they're, if they look like an irresponsible company. And the environmental groups tried hard to paint them as an irresponsible company. So I do think that that framing did, did, you know, affect their decision. And, you know, maybe they would have made the decision anyway, but I do think that the pressure mattered. Catherine, well, let's go to your bread and butter to wrap up. Hmm. Congress, federal lawmakers are uh, working on a, 
a bunch of energy bills, some good for renewables, some very good for oil and gas. What's what's actually moving forward? What is just political messaging? Help us understand everything that's moving at the moment. Yeah, so there have been efforts in both the House and Senate that I've talked about, um, and they've been mostly bipartisan. So the Senate, Senator Murkowski and Ranking Member Maria Cantwell from Washington State, um, you know, there were like 112 bills introduced and they cobbled them together into something that everybody could support. Now, then Cantwell and the Democrats released their own set of initiatives, which were different and, and didn't have to worry about negotiating or getting compromised. They they also released their own set, which were which were more messaging. But the one that Murkowski and Cantwell put together, I think everybody was kind of on board that this was not it wasn't going to really change the game for renewables, but it wasn't going to harm them. And it was going to be um, going to get tweak a few things and, and help generally um, move toward more innovative, resilient infrastructure. And then on the House side, the same sort of thing happened where um, on Energy and Commerce Chairman uh, Upton and ranking member Pallone worked together very closely. In the end, it kind of broke down because there were a couple of provisions that were pretty controversial. One was a title on hydropower that um, was the only technology that was called out that caused a lot of issue, grief um, with the NGOs. And then there were also some provisions, you know, saying that, um, for example, reliable re- energy generation can only de- be defined a certain way, and that would not be in the way that we would define, you know, it would only be fossil and nuclear plants that would really qualify for that. So there were things like that that were poison pills. I think in the end, though, they want to pass something. Upton really wants to pass something that he can conference with the Senate. And when I was talking to staff up there this week, they said, look, if we can just come up with a few provisions on innovation, resilience, infrastructure that everybody can buy into, then we can get something done and have something to send to the president. Now, there's a pretty short window to do this. They don't have time the rest of this year. There's just no time this year. They've got so many things coming up. They have you know, the the highway bill, the debt ceiling, uh, another continuing resolution to keep the government open in December. They have all these things they have to get done. So I could see like January, February time, maybe doing something on an energy bill that could be bipartisan. Um, and, you know, it'd be too bad if they couldn't do anything at all next year. But the reality is after March, things just get really, really political, more political. Is there any interesting horse trading happening on Capitol Hill right now, Catherine? Like, are, are there any specific trade-offs that renewables advocates are looking for or, you know, Republicans are looking to make? Like, any, any anything interesting that we could be looking at for trade-offs? I don't know. I mean, I've heard a lot of people saying things like, oh, if we get the oil export ban, then we can get permanent renewable tax credits. And I'm like, just stop. Stop thinking things like that. That's crazy. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, in the end, you're going to have to have, you're going to have to do something about extending the renewable credits and, you know, there will have to be some deal cut somewhere to do that and to prevent them from going away altogether. But I don't see some big grand bargain. I just, I don't think you've got enough people who can coalesce around one thing. Let's finish up with our segment we call T-M-S-I-D-K. Tell me something I don't know. Catherine, what is your story this week? Enlighten us. Yeah, well, mine added the initials WTF because um, there has been quite the kerfuffle over the Speaker of the House of Representatives. Um, we didn't, one subject we did not touch on was the Pope's visit, which was also a big deal. But right after the Pope's visit and during the Pope's visit, um, Speaker of the House John Boehner was quite 
touched. I mean, obviously touched about having him there. He'd worked really hard to get a Pope to visit. Um, and I think it kind of played into his thinking about like, why do I want to do this job anymore? This is just all, there's so many better things I can be doing. Um, I could be making millions fighting. on K Street. Well, yeah, I hate to be that no, cynical. I, I hate don't... to be that cynical. But, I mean, so he decided he was going to back out. I think he has been on the line consistently trying to cut deals with Mitch McConnell and the president. And he has these 40 guys in this Freedom Caucus in the House that are just absolutely relentless and they fight on everything and they are just trying to bring down everything. So he decided to step down. And interestingly today, uh, Kevin McCarthy was seen as the front runner. He's from California and he has more solar and wind in his district than anybody on the planet. Not that he supports those technologies, but we were always very hopeful. Um, and he looked like the front runner. And then Jason Chaffetz from a Republican from Utah who's more uh, conservative than Kevin McCarthy, although Kevin McCarthy is a pretty conservative guy. Jason Chaffetz is the chair of the House Oversight Committee who pummeled um, Planned Parenthood relentlessly. And so he is very conservative. Um, he and Kevin McCarthy, between the two of them, were not going to be able to win the slot for speaker. They weren't either one of them going to get 218 votes because they would pull off too many votes from each other. So today they went into the conference. The Freedom Caucus has chosen Daniel Webster, a Republican from Florida, um, to be their guy. And McCarthy stepped out and he said, I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm not going to try this because what will happen is, you know, these everything will get so the votes will get so watered down that then who's in charge? The Democrats. Because <laughs> um, out of the 435 members, you have 247 Republicans. 40 of them are this Freedom Caucus, about 40. So then you're left to 207 um, votes versus 188 Dems. And you need to get all those 207 votes to get to be, you know, basically, or some some portion of that more than the 40 plus 188. And it's So what's tricky. the chances that Nancy Pelosi becomes speaker? <laughs> no, I don't know. It was like one of those things that for like 39 seconds, somebody said, oh, wow, that could really happen. But it won't. But there is a lot of upheaval. I was over there all day yesterday and the the offices I went to, even though like the solid conservatives were like, this is crazy. We can't be like this. And they're like, you know, find those 40 guys and vote them out. Get rid of them. And so all this kind of euphoria about look how much of a majority we have, they're starting to see that they have this big majority that they're not able to hold together. This is going to get really bad because the debt ceiling needs to get yes. lifted. Yes, and yes. so it this is going to get horrible. Yeah, it could cause our bond ratings to go down. I mean, it could, this could be really, really bad for our economy. There's only one job worse than being president, and that's being Speaker of the House for the Re Republican Party. That's a thankless job, man. So uh, yeah. Boehner is probably glad that he's out. And McCarthy's probably glad that he's he's uh, not taking the job or not considering the job. Jigger, TMSIDK. So I don't know if you guys know Glencore uh, much, but Glencore is a gigantic corporation that really deals in commodities. Um, you know, and basically they, their stock price just got pummeled uh, this last week. And um, he basically, you know, had gave this long interview, this guy named Peter Freiberg. And, and Bloomberg reported on it and basically said that coal prices today are lower than they were in the financial crisis of 2008. And that's largely due to the fact that um, we've got so much solar and wind going in that they're, the futures market in coal is just negative, negative, negative. And I just, 
it's a huge breakthrough. I mean, such a huge breakthrough that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have now cut their coal price forecasts from 2016 through 2018. Um, it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Mine is related to the investment tax credit. And of course, the ITC is crucial for solar and, and some other distributed renewable energy technologies. The IRS, though, hasn't updated its guidelines on what qualifies under the credit since uh, like the mid-80s. And since things have changed a lot since then, uh, one of the things that's unclear is what qualifies for a dual-use facility. That It's really important for storage because so a lot of people are pairing storage systems. I wouldn't say a lot of people, but more people are st- pairing storage systems with solar because obviously a storage system is a lot cheaper if you can take advantage of the ITC as well. Installers have assumed that it does qualify, but the rules are not that explicit. So the IRS said last Friday it's going to issue new guidelines eventually on dual-use facilities, which will hopefully make things more transparent for companies developing these types of projects and maybe some co-generation facilities. Uh, Julia Piper, who's a, a senior writer for us, has a good story on the background at GTM this week, so you can just check that out on the site. And I think they're taking public comment through February of next year. So it'll be many months before these new guidelines get issued, but certainly important for the industry, given how fast storage is going to evolve. Yeah, this is a really big deal because every single company was having to need a private letter ruling for every project they did, and that is really expensive. So if we can get some overarching guidance, that will really help the industry. That, ladies and gentlemen, marks the end of the show. As a reminder, you can find all of our content still for free at GTM at greentechmedia.com. You can also access our new premium service, GTM Squared, for only $1.99 a year. More details on the offerings can be found at greentechmedia.com slash squared. If you have questions, comments, concerns, ideas, please send them our way. We love to hear from our listeners. We can be reached at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. You can also connect with us all on Twitter. The three of us are very easy to find there. Catherine, have a fantastic rest of your week and weekend. Thank you. It's a three-day weekend um, because of the federal holiday for the dude who is the least um, deserving of a holiday, Columbus. But I'll take it. I will take it. Jigger, I heard a little background noise there. I think your family is actually visiting you, and you and your wife are due any day now, right? That's right. We're like October 13th, so any day now. So maybe on Columbus Day. <laughs> that would be that, that, that would be completely inappropriate since he named Native Americans Indians. Yeah. Um, so but I, I will rename the holiday and then your child would be more deserving of the holiday than Columbus. <laughs> well, you know, we'll see how he turns out before we rename holidays after him. Yeah. yeah, I'll let you touch that joke. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I am Stephen Lacey. And this is The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next time.